All right. If you can grab a seat. Hey, you guys, thanks for coming out tonight. My courageous friends in the middle of the pandemic with it being really lousy outside. Thank you guys for showing up and being here in person. Uh, and for those of you who are watching online, uh, thanks for being smart with yourself as well. Uh, hope that you guys are able to pay attention at home and kind of track with us. And for those of you who are going to listen throughout the rest of the week, uh, our thoughts are with you. We are looking forward to the time when we are taking off masks and we could be all together and we could be past this. We're hoping it is soon, but for now, uh, we're gonna just going to do our best. And thank you all of you for kind of meeting us wherever you're at tonight. Uh, we are still at church, even if we are scattered a little bit as we do this. Uh, I hope that your New Year's is starting off great. I hope that you are making progress on your New Year's resolutions. I hope you have found that new year, new you, that it looks dramatically different than the last year, and that you haven't already kind of backslid on your commitments. I have, I think I have more New Year's resolutions this year than I've ever had in years past. But there's three that I think I'm kind of excited to share with you. The first one. I'm going to use more moisturizer this year. And the reason why the moneymaker is starting to look a little bit like a catcher's mitt, and it just needs help. And so I'm going to use more moisturizer this year, and you're going to see the difference in your pastor. The second thing, every time goat cheese or blue cheese is offered, I'm going to try it. Now, I've talked about this before. I believe that these two items taste like the inside of a garbage disposal. There is nothing that I want to eat less, but I feel like I'm a child. That somehow I need to be able to eat these foods. So whenever it's out, I'm going to try it. And you can hold me accountable to this, and you can watch the show that happens when I try. Now, the final thing, I've decided that this is going to be the year where I am able to bench press as much as I could in college. <laughs> well... It wasn't really a lot in college anyway, but like still, like I should at least be able to do that, right? Because if I can't do it now, Garrick, I'm never going to be able to do it, right? Like this is the window, either I get serious and I do it, or else not, or else it's just another way to hurt myself. And I've done a lot of that this year, hurting myself, so why not do that as well? So that's where I'm at. I encourage you to share your embarrassing <laughs> New Year's resolutions. Uh, Lifeway is a Christian publishing house. They do a ton of the books that you love, and they did a survey of Christians and what their New Year's resolutions are looking like. And there's some of the typical ones that you'd expect, and there's also some unique ones this year. Uh, the first one, the one that most people responded to as being, having in common is this. They want to take their health seriously this year. Now, that's just normal, right? Everybody wants to lose 10 pounds every year. But I think it's a little bit unique this year when we've had such a focus on health and getting healthy and staying healthy that when we put it on there this year, it just probably means a little bit more. Uh, we recognize that we have to take better care of ourselves if we're going to keep kind of making it through this season. So I thought it was telling to see it so high this time. The second one is people want to reconnect with God. And look, that's, that's very normal for January as well, right? Usually, this would be the biggest week of the year at church. Typically, the first week back after New Year's Eve is when we pack the house. Now, obviously, people are afraid that the air is poison, so we're not doing that right now. But normally, this would be our biggest week as people want to, kind of in December, you get busy with holidays and you, you lose track of church, or you've got to kind of repent for what you did on New Year's Eve, whatever it might be. Like, people are trying to reconnect with God, so that's not surprising as well. But the third one kind of grabbed me, and it's to reconnect with family that they've grown distant from. And boy, that I think describes the season. 
as we try to figure out how on earth do we kind of come back together and reconnect as a family. I think in the past we've all had uh, that uh, Uncle Jim who uh, believed that Sasquatch was real. And that was, that was fun. That was fun talking to him about Sasquatch is real. It's a lot less fun when Uncle Jim believes that Tom Hanks eats babies. That's a lot less fun. And I think as we live in this year and as we've experienced family gaps and distances, we want to reconnect and reach across those things even though it feels really hard because it feels like we're more different from each other than we've ever been before. These New Year's resolutions, they just look a little bit different to me than the typical ones of like take a painting class or learn to bake bread. Like these ones have emotional weight kind of behind them. And yet the odds are that if you've made a New Year's resolution, you're not going to be very successful in keeping it. So the New York posted an article about a week ago, and they said uh, it takes the average New Year's resolution 32 days to be broken. So you're going to make it, you're not even going to make it to Valentine's Day. So if you thought you were going to look hot for Valentine's Day and lose 10 pounds, it's not happening. Uh, and not only that, they say only 8% of all New Year's resolutions will actually make it the full course of the year, and they're not really going to stick. So that means by Valentine's Day, none of you are going to be eating well. You're all going to be eating chalupas again. Uh, you're not going to be at church. You're going to be at home watching football. Uh, and you're not going to be bench pressing anything, really, sig significant whatsoever. You're going to have a hard time. And yet, what I think is really uh, amazing about the church is that it should be a place where New Year's resolutions are made, celebrated, and kept because the foundations of what we believe is that God can change us. That change is, is possible. And not just subtle changes, but dramatic, huge changes that our hearts and our lives could be made new. That our past can be wiped away. That we could actually be born again, get a totally new start. That those wounds that we've carried for so long, that they could be healed. That our hearts could be changed in the way that we think could be changed. And we could become almost an entirely different person, remade and changed by God's presence in our lives. And it's not just that we become changed. The, the word that scripture uses is transformed. That we would be like this totally different person on the other side of it once God's grace goes to work in our life. The challenge for us is that transformation, it, it just takes time. Changing your diet or changing your exercise patterns, those things are kind of quick, but, but true transformation where God is working in our hearts and lives and remaking us is something that takes time and process and growth and struggle and maturity, but it's all done with him. It's done by his power, not by our own. And oftentimes, we're eager for change, we're frustrated by the slowness of transformation. We're frustrated with ourselves, that we can't change faster. We want to put the gas pedal down on our own selves, and we want to be different now. And so we're frustrated with ourselves. And not only that, we, we get frustrated with other people when they don't change quickly. And all of us have at some point given someone an ultimatum of, you change now or else. And that's very consistent because we are frustrated with ourselves and our slowness of change. We're frustrated with other people and their slowness of change. And we imagine that God must, must surely be frustrated with us that we change so slowly. That he must look at us and think, I just wish that they would get it together. But what we see in, in the text of Scripture, and what we're going to especially see tonight, is that he is not, not frustrated, that he is in fact what the scriptures are going to say are, is perfectly patient with us. He's perfectly patient with us 
and in all of our mistakes, and all of our messiness, and all of our slowness in that process. And perhaps no story tells that better about God's perfect patience than the story of Saul's conversion. Uh, we're going to cover that passage today. It is a familiar story, and what's unique about it is that there may not be another person in the history of the church who has done as much damage to the church as Saul. And yet there is also no other person in the history of the world who has done more good for the church than Saul. And that gap between what he once was and what he became, what ends up happening there is God's presence working in his life and bringing about the change that we so desperately want to see in our own. So today we're going to see how God changed him, how God can change us, and how there is the perfect patience available from God in all of our struggles and all that we do. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Now, now here's the deal. Um, one of the things I think that you've probably heard me do a little bit differently uh, in the present than in the past is I've really come to try to take this section of the reading of Scripture more seriously. Uh, when you have a lot that you want to preach, sometimes this feels like I've got to get through this so I can get to what I really want to do, which is my important thoughts. Uh, but I really think there's a power in just simply hearing the words and letting it kind of soak in our lives. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And we're going to read this. We're going to do our best to read it really well. This is Acts 9, chapter 1. It's going to kind of start off really quick, but I'm going to catch us up on it. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there, speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. But Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray. Lord, uh, we have a lot to cover, as always. And yet, Lord, there is something in here that I think we desperately need to hear, which is how you think of us, how you regard us, and the depth of your commitment to us. Give us the ears to hear it tonight. 
on the eyes of sea. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Now, it's been a month since we were in the Advent series, uh, and so we covered our original introduction to Saul about six weeks ago, so it's been a little bit of time. So I'm just going to go really quickly kind of over the story to kind of catch you up. Um, What has ended up happening is that Stephen was this church leader who was massively influential in the early church, and he ended up being arrested for his preaching. It was so compelling. And the accusation against Stephen was two things. First of all, they accused him of changing the Torah law that all Jews were expected to live under. And the second accusation is that they accused him of speaking against the Holy Temple. Now, these are are really serious charges back then, uh, and it would have brought certainly a death penalty to him. And so he is put on trial uh, about two chapters back in the book of Acts. Now, when he goes on trial, for me, I think it's one of the most boring passages in Scripture, or at least I used to, because when you read it, he basically gives a summary of the Old Testament. It's like 50 verses summarizing it. And when you read it, you don't really get what's going on. You don't understand what he's saying. And really, I think it was Ben Aaron who led worship for tonight who really helped me kind of see some of the things that God's doing here. One of the things that Stephen starts to point out is that God has always worked outside of the temple. Okay, so he starts to show them. Do you remember when God called Abraham? Do you remember when God spoke to Moses on Sinai? Do you remember in the wilderness? Do you remember what he did with Joshua? He starts taking him through the Old Testament and the way that God moved outside of the temple in significant ways. That's the first thing he does. But the second thing he starts to show them is that every time God moved in the past, it was usually God's people who opposed the actions that he was doing. It was they who killed the prophets. It was they are the ones who turned their back on what God was doing. It was the Jewish people that were breaking God's heart. Now, all of this would have been familiar for the Jewish people. They would have heard this when Stephen's giving this big speech, and they would have thought, thank God, Stephen is orthodox. He is preaching the right things. He is saying it all the right way. He is laying out the history of Israel. This is perfect. They wouldn't have been worried. But then Stephen gives a twist to it. He says, here's the deal. You people that are here listening today, you are worse than even your ancestors because God moved outside of the temple and sending his son Jesus and you killed even him. Not just that you killed the the prophets in the past, you killed the very son of God. And it is that emotional shift that he makes from making them believe that he is on their side to suddenly turning the tables on them that causes this emotional response from them that is violent. In fact, they begin to tear their clothes and they begin to pull out their hair and scream at the top of their lungs, which is a very Middle Eastern sort of way to show your anger and grief in this day. And then he says that I see the heavens opened up and I see Jesus up there. And in this moment, they grab stones and they kill Stephen. Now, now this is what's interesting. When they kill Stephen, they begin to lay their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is in a sense giving them permission for the killing. They're honoring Saul as they do it. And when they lay their feet at Saul, what essentially is happening is that Saul is giving them political protection from any charges that might happen from the violence, okay? He is the person who is in control of everything that is happening here to Stephen. So who is this man who has the power and the authority to protect people as they murder another? Who is this person that is so respected and carries so much power? Saul, in his day, was one of the best and the brightest uh, amongst the rabbis that were in in Israel. He uh, came from the right family. 
He had the right education. He knew the right people. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was as smart as they come and was one of the brightest stars really in the entire country of Israel. He was absolutely a somebody. And because of the way that the religious powers worked, he not only had religious significant power, but he also had political power. He's kind of like a mix between being a Romney and being a child of Billy Graham. He is the mixture of political power, influence, and connection, and also religious authority and respect. That's who he is, right? So when you see him, he is indeed somebody. But here's what's so fascinating about Saul. Although he's incredibly religious, he is not very godly. He is incredibly religious, but he is not very godly. Think about this moment. That he is there watching people grab stones and throw them at Stephen until eventually he dies from the stones and the blows. They essentially concuss him to death. Think about what that must have been like to sit there and watch someone be killed right in front of you. As humans, we, we very naturally have an emotional response to violence. And there's a difference between like the violence you see on TV and the violence you see like in MMA fighting and the real violence that happens right in front of you. If you've ever seen somebody be punched, you gasped. You pulled back and it outright scared you. Because we're not really used to that sort of thing. And that is the humanity that's kind of ingrained in us, although it's marred by what sin has done. Inside of us is the image of God, and we see that in someone else. And when we really see violence, it shakes us up. I think that's partly what happened with the George Floyd murder. When we saw it, think about your own emotional response and what it did to you. Now, Saul is there watching a man be killed. And as he watches, it says that he approves of what's happening. The violence doesn't affect him. In fact, he approves of it and he wants more of it. That he doesn't think it's really gone far enough. This is a man who literally has the entire Old Testament memorized. He could tell you every story about God's compassionate grace, about his chesed, kind love that God has for people. But personally, he doesn't really experience it. He knows of it, but he hasn't experienced it. Those characteristics are still far from him. He could tell you about the joy of the Lord that is seen in the Psalms, but he himself is joyless. He could tell you about the righteousness of God, but he is willing to be unrighteous in how he treats other people. There's this gap that exists between his own faith and religion and who God is, and he just doesn't see it. In fact, he is so distant from God that he believes that he is pleasing God while he kills another. Have you ever seen that before? Where someone is incredibly religious, but they are not very godly. Of course we have. Of course we have. And how does it happen? It happens probably through a number of different ways, but, but a few of them are these. One of the times I think is that sometimes God just becomes an idea. And we think of him as a concept, but not as a person with thoughts and emotions and feelings and desires. And what, when God becomes like this concept, what ends up happening to us is that we become students, but we don't necessarily become disciples. We collect knowledge, we collect information, and in a sense we become experts mentally, but we're not actually following after him. 
And that's not something we ever intend to do, but when we become detached from the person of God and we make him into the concept, then what ends up happening is that we end up knowing a lot about him without actually knowing him. A second thing I think that can happen to us in the church is that we could draw a lot of identity and a lot of purpose out of being a Christian without necessarily being a Christ follower. Look, if you ever grew up in the church, you know those stories of the people who know every Bible lesson, who go to every sort of Sunday school class, who've been born and raised in the church, and out of that has come a community, and has come status, and has come opportunities, and maybe even power and roles that they could have there, but it's their social connection with people. It's not actually their personal relationship with God. And so the church ends up becoming a place where I could be someone, where I could be known, where I could have community, all of which is good, but they never really close the gap to actually knowing God himself. And so this becomes a means for friendship, for a family, but we don't actually know who God is. And sometimes we do know who he is, but we drift, and we aren't aware of where the drift is actually taking us. We end again to say yes to sin, and we don't even realize it. And we say yes to one sin, and eventually we say yes to many sins until eventually we are distant from God. There's a pastor named Leonard Sweet who I enjoy, uh, and he likes to push the buttons. So this quote pushes the buttons, but he said this, 2022 is the year that we need to preach the gospel to Christians and not to non-Christians. Because he said far too many of us think that we actually know God, but really all we know is religion. It is hard to gauge how true that is or not, but I want to at least be provoked by that, to actually look at my own self and to look at my own heart and to see, is this just simply some sort of formality? Is this just simply some sort of religion, or do I actually know God? And I have to tell you, I am so tired of leaders who seem to be following a religion, but don't seem to actually know God at all. I am tired of leaders who have used their positions to try to open up opportunities for themselves with women or to oppress women. I've heard stories this week that absolutely broke my heart about how sisters in the church have been treated as they have been pursued uh, as objects uh, or for their own desires of pastors or leaders. We've heard so many of those stories, and there's so many that we haven't heard, and I am so tired of it. I'm tired of leaders who try to use their position to back a political party that take this sort of pulpit and use it as a platform to rally for votes, uh, which it could not be farther, I think, from God's heart. I'm so tired of leaders who are using their position uh, to make a personal brand, who seem to be more focused on building their followers than making disciples. I'm so tired of leaders who seem to be chasing uh, fame away from orthodoxy, and are willing to say whatever they need to say in order to help the spotlight shine a little more brightly on them. I'm tired of leaders who know the Bible, but are bitter and are angry and are mean. And I'm tired of leaders who set end times expectations to build fear in their congregation, only to see the timelines not met, and then you just move the timeline a little bit further and you do the process again. And two people live in constant state of fear and alienation waiting for the day when the government's going to eventually come and kill them or put a microchip in their forehead. And yet if we look close enough, or maybe I'll make this personal, if I look close enough, I could see the seeds of all of those sins already existing within me. That all of those things are temptations that I myself 
have to face and that I see. The difference is that I justify myself. I justify where I'm at and I take my, give myself the benefit of the doubt. I justify myself while I crucify someone else. And you have to look that inside of me there is every sort of sin and every sort of darkness that could be in every sort of leader. That we are all um, one or two bad decisions from a massive failure. And that is true for you and it's true for me. That none of us are really any better than anyone else. And that really there is no sin that I can't commit given a little bit of isolation and a little bit of time. That I can find myself justifying my way to almost anything. This is why James 3.2 says we all fall in many ways. If anybody thinks that they're perfect, they should be careful, he says. Uh, Galatians 6.3 says if anybody thinks that there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. You see, anytime I look at somebody else and look down on somebody else or how their sin has taken them, I have to realize I'm just a few steps from behind them. None of us are anything significant. Inside all of us is the potential for us to blow up our own lives. Maturity, real Christian maturity, is when I begin to realize my need for Jesus Christ in my life and not when I begin to think that somebody else needs Jesus Christ in their life. Maturity is when I begin to see the plank in my own eye uh, and not imagining it to be that sort of splinter. And there's this moment for Saul where he could have moved away from religion to really knowing God. There's a moment where he could have actually changed and moved towards him. He is there hearing the gospel preached by Stephen. He's there hearing it given to him. And he's not just hearing Stephen. He's hearing God speaking through Stephen is what the scriptures say. He's there hearing it. And there's a moment where if he could have softened his heart, his entire life could have changed dramatically in a moment before all the regrets came. And yet, instead of him moving towards God when he heard the gospel preach, it actually trampolined him further away. He was so far away from God that when he hears the gospel preach, he actually turns his back on it and he runs from it. It says here in 8.3, or previously, uh, when the first story begins, that Saul begins to destroy the church after he hears Stephen preach. That word destroy is the Greek word for, for lionomai. We see it one other time in scriptures in the Psalms, and it's used to describe a boar's tusks as it grinds it into the flesh of an animal it's, it's attacking. That's a picture of tusks tearing the flesh. That's what Saul is doing to the church. He has got his tusks into it, and he's trying to tear the church apart. In 9-1, where we picked up the passage today, it says that Saul is breathing murderous threats. That everything he speaks, all the air that he breathes, is simply violence. In 26-11, Paul's going to tell his story. And when he tells it, he says that he lived his life with a raging fury. Saul's sin that he seems to struggle with is anger, it is violence, and it is escalating. In fact, we should believe that the text seems to hint at it without explicitly saying it, 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 it hints at it, that Stephen is not the only Christian who dies from his faith due to Saul. That he goes around arresting and attacking, breathing out murderous threats and tearing apart the church. That there are Christians whose lives are changed or ended due to what he does. And here's the thing, it's about to become worse. Because we see in the passage that this time he goes and gets letters from the Sanhedrin to go after Christians. What happened last time was that he had gone and done this on his own. 
He'd use his own reputation and his own name to protect these people as they attacked Stephen. But now he is going with the permission of the religious authorities of his day, their shield, their letters, so that he could go and arrest Christians. This means that the Roman government and the Jewish leaders and Saul are combining and giving each other the mutual blessing to stop Christians. Their plan had been to stop them in Jerusalem to do all the arrests there, but as they begin to arrest them, the people scatter. And one of the things that's happening is that Damascus is about an hour north. It is a commerce hub. That's where all the sort of traffic flows through. And he begins to believe that if he doesn't stop them in Damascus, well then Christianity will not be stopped anywhere. So he is traveling there with all the power and all the authority that he needs to stop Christians, and the Christians do not stand a chance. But God intervenes. He is intending to save the church, but here's what's really amazing. He is also intending to save Saul as well. God would have been completely justified in abandoning Saul. Paul, uh, God would have been totally justified if he had taken Saul. And by the way, if I keep calling Saul Paul or Paul Saul, his name changes eventually, and I'm just messing up up here. So, they are the same person. At this time, his name is Saul. And God would have been justified completely if he had treated Saul in the same way that Saul treated Stephen. If God had executed him in this moment, it would have made sense. But God's heart is to bring Saul close to him, not to push him far from him. In fact, it seems that in life, the further we are from God, the harder he seems to pursue us. It doesn't seem like there is ever a time where we can be so far from God that he will not still chase and try to bring us home. And before Saul can seize a single Christian, Saul himself is seized by Christ. Now, we don't have a story about Saul and Jesus meeting, but they would have been the same age. They both would have been rabbis. They would have been interacting with the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders. We know that all of the countryside is speaking about who Jesus is. So it seems almost impossible that Saul would not have had some sort of distant contact or familiarity with who Jesus is. But he's never met this Jesus. The Jesus that he has met is the one who was born in a manger, the one who was living this humble life, the carpenter's son, the one from Nazareth, from Galilee, the man who was traveling on the money that was given to him by women there who believed in his ministry. They ha he had known the humble carpenter's son, but here is Jesus Christ raised and exalted and glorified and seated at the right hand of the Father. He is now meeting Jesus, stepped fully into his glory. And so the interaction is one that is new and it's unfamiliar for Saul. He does not know exactly who he is. And God asks him, Jesus asks him an impossible question. Saul, why do you persecute me? If we read it in the original language, it's actually far more personal than that. It's Saul, Saul, why are you hurting me? That's Jesus' words to him. Jesus has died and raised. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and yet, as the church hurts, so does Jesus hurt. Or more personally, as you and I hurt, so does Jesus Christ hurt. And the answer is impossible for him, because the answer is, I am persecuting these people because they say that you, Jesus, rose from the dead. And yet he is speaking to him. 
And so to answer is, in a sense, to acknowledge that he is wrong. And that he is now standing before the one who is truly alive. What's interesting is God does something fascinating here. There's a way that the prophets talk about uh, ancient Israel. He says that they were always uh, deaf and blind to the things of God. They did not have eyes to see or the ears to hear. And that certainly is true for Saul, right? I mean, he sees Jesus, but he doesn't really see him. He hears Jesus, but he never had the ability to hear him. And now Jesus is going to get his attention in a way that would have been very familiar to him. He takes his sight. And for three days, he is going to be as blind physically as he has been spiritually. And for three days, he is going to be unable to see where he's going to go. He thought he was going to enter into Damascus full of glory and power and authority, and instead he's going to be led by the hand. His entire life is turned upside down. And God is not going to leave him alone. This is what's great about this. And, and, and I think sometimes we miss this when we read this story. We think that Jesus appears to Saul, and then for three days Saul is there in the dark. But that is not what happens. It says that Jesus speaks to Saul, and then he directs him where to go. He says, go to Damascus, and I'll tell you what to do next. It then says that Jesus appears to him in a dream and tells him that a man named Ananias is going to come. And then Ananias comes to him. You see, once Jesus begins the act of saving Saul, he doesn't leave him alone. From the moment he goes blind, Jesus is there with him through every next step. Then once Jesus steps in, he doesn't step back. Once Jesus grabs a hold of him, he does not let him go. He is going to be there with him until this, this journey is over. Jesus afflicts him, but he also walks with him in that affliction. C.S. Lewis uh, was this um, agnostic atheist in England who came to faith and ended up becoming, in a lot of ways, England's version of Saul here that he became an influential leader in the church. And the way he talks about his conversion is so similar to what Saul describes in, in his own life. He said that it felt like at times that he was a mouse and that Jesus was the cat. And it didn't matter how hard he tried to run or escape, Jesus just kept patting him back to being stuck in front of him. He said at times it felt like Jesus was the fisherman who had the lure of salvation that kept pulling him closer and closer to him. And he also said that it felt like his spirituality was a game of chess against Jesus. And every move he made, it seemed that Jesus somehow cornered him back in. He says that he realized that he had a choice. That he could go on living his life as one who had sealed himself away in this armor, or he could follow the invitation of Jesus and step out of the armor into a life that was free and with him. And yet he said, that it felt like there was truly no choice at all because to choose anything other than Jesus wouldn't be to choose a new life. It would be, in fact, to choose death. He says this is what it feels like when God begins to pursue us or God begins to chase us, is that he draws us in love to himself, all the way winning and stopping any argument that we might ever make against him. But for Saul, he's in crisis. Because think about it, in this moment he realizes that he has been just following religion, and he has not actually known God. And what he thought was righteousness was actually wickedness. What he thought was justice was actually murder. And when Saul's living these next three days, it says that he doesn't eat and he doesn't drink. Look, it's very normal for Pharisees not to eat. They would fast regularly. It was a part of their regular life. But not to drink is the sign of someone who is probably in shock, 
and also in grief, and also in the depths of despair about what he's done. This is a man who is in complete crisis in this moment. The, the, you can almost see him struggling with shame. As this, this sort of vacuum that's sucking him in, like there is no hope for him. What he's done, there is no way back from it. And certainly that is the message that Satan is trying to tell him, that there is no way back from what he has done. And we know that feeling. When you and I finally see our sin for what it is, we usually feel the vacuum of shame that pulls us actually away from God, not towards him. That pulls us back into almost warfare with ourselves instead of others. In those moments, we crucify ourselves far more than we crucify anyone else. The pain is real for Saul. He really did make mistakes, and yet God refuses to leave him alone in it. And this is what I love. Rather than God come along and comfort him, God's plan is for the church to be the one to come and bring him comfort. He needs a physical touch of a human being. He doesn't need another light from heaven. He doesn't need another voice from heaven. He doesn't need an angelic messenger. What he needs is an arm around him. What he needs is grace and forgiveness from somebody that can see and touch and hold. And so God sends Ananias there to him. And when Ananias comes to him, he does two amazing things. First of all, he calls him Brother Saul. There is not a thing that Saul has done that has made him brotherly. There is not a reason for him to offer that sort of kindness, except that Ananias is not religious. He actually knows Jesus Christ. This is what true religion looks like. And then he puts his hands on him and prays for him. His fear had been that when Saul came, that he would lay his hands on him. He says he's coming to arrest people, and yet in this moment, he is the one who gets to put his hands on and pray. And it's in this moment that the church is able to give to Saul the love and the grace that he needs to finally accept Christ and to finally, finally come to know God. And we're going to follow Saul's life for the rest of the book of Acts and time and time again, he's going to come back to this story here on the road to Damascus. He's going to tell this story again in Acts 22, in Acts 26, in Galatians 1, in 1 Timothy 1, and in Philippians 3. He keeps talking about it because he can't stop. It's impacted him so much. But in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, he tells about it in a fascinating way. I'm going to put it up here on the side screen and read it to you. He says this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe. In the RSV, that phrase, immense patience, is written, perfect patience. That God has perfect patience for sinners. And that means that he has perfect patience for right now for you and I. He knows full well that you are not who you want to be. He knows full well that your life is full of struggles and frustrations and setbacks. 
He knows, knows full well that if you were to ever see all of your sin, that you would spiral back into shame, not towards him, but away from him, and that there is nothing that you can do in and of yourself to change yourself. And yet in his perfect patience, what he offers you is his Holy Spirit and his holy presence to come and be with you and to remain in you and to change you slowly over time. And he knows that in that journey towards him, there's going to be ups and downs, there's going to be struggles, there's going to be commitments that aren't kept and that aren't broken, but in all of the failures that we have, God remains perfectly patient with all of us because he loves us and because he loves you right now. Look, the odds are I'm going to hate blue cheese as much in 2023 as I do right now. I might be able to do the bench press, but chances are by the end of the year, I won't be able to do it again. I'm going to do it like one time and call it even, then be done. And there's no way I'm going to do moisturizer because I'm just too tired at night, and I have too many kids I have to raise. And if I'm going to put moisturizer on night, I just don't realistically see that happening. And whatever commitment, whatever New Year's resolution you start to make, chances are you are not going to be successful in it. And there's none of them that if you actually are, are going to actually bring you the happiness that you desire except one, which is to allow the perfect patience of God to draw you closer to him and to a relationship with him and further away from religion so that you can actually say that you truly know the God who is desperate to know you. Let me pray. Lord, Lord, we go through our lives with a lot of shoulds. And Lord, they just do very little to actually bring about real change. But your spirit is with us. And God, we ask that, Lord, when people would look at us and see us, they would see people who humbly know just how needy we are and yet also so joyfully proclaim that you love us still despite of our limitations. We give our hearts and lives to you. We give this year to you, and we ask that you be with us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you guys go ahead and stand with us as we